Hi and welcome to this latest podcast from News from the Front. In this episode we'll be picking up from uh, the previous episode about uh, propaganda in the Great War. If you'll remember we'd got as far as the publication of the Bryce Report with its damning accounts of German atrocities. We kick off this next episode with the German response to that. If you haven't already signed up to the Substack, uh, please do. Just head on over there and type in News from the Front and subscribe. Right, let's get on with the show. Everything you hold for vile is at all in all, the Bryce Report was a huge success for British propaganda and Wellington House, and one that the Germans couldn't easily ignore. In response, the Germans published their own White Book, which, and this quotes from the White Book preamble, The Imperial German government believe that by the publication of the material contained in this work, they have proved in a convincing manner that the action of the German troops against the Belgian civil population was provoked by the illegal guerrilla war and was required by the necessities of war. The White Book documented alleged Belgian violations of the rules of war, especially the actions of franc and civilian combatants, and used these reports to justify German actions in response to those attacks, claiming that these were illegal actions within the rules of war. Here's a typical excerpt from the White Book. Either on Sunday, August the 9th, 1914, or on Monday, August 10th, 1914, I saw at a village quite close to Erve in Belgium a German hussar bound to a tree by his hands and feet. Two large long nails had been driven through his eyes and his head so that he was fixed to the tree by the two nails. The hussar had ceased to live. In the same village, there was lying by a wooden fence in front of a farm an infantryman of the 52nd Infantry Regiment. His eyes had been put out, his ears, nose and fingers cut off, and his stomach slashed about so that the intestines were visible. The breast of the dead soldier had also been ba so badly stabbed that it was completely mangled. For both these cases of gross cruelty, the Belgian civilians alone can be held responsible. The German response fell largely on deaf ears. It's always harder to respond than to seize the initiative once the damage has already been done. Of course, the Germans had committed atrocities, and around 5,500 Belgian civilians had been killed in the period between the 18th and 28th of August 1914, but much of the stuff in the Bryce report was wild embellishments and fabrications. Civilians were particularly at risk when German soldiers had drunk too much stolen alcohol, but to nothing like the extent detailed in the Bryce report. The problem of Frank Tireur, who disrupted the advance by acting as guerrilla fighters, shooting random soldiers and officers, and inviting reprisals, was one area where the Germans felt they were acting legally, but their actions could easily be interpreted as shooting civilians out of hand. Complicating matters were friendly fire incidents amongst the Germans, and the minimalist and often ad hoc uniforms worn by the 100,000 Belgian Guard Civique, who were called up without proper equipment, which may have contributed to the perception that they were civilians. 
The German problem was that their explanations tended to be legalistic, and these arguments didn't make good headway against the accusation that innocent women, children and old men were being murdered in cold blood. The White Book was never as successful as the Bryce Report, partly because Wellington House worked hard to prevent the German response from being printed in neutral countries, partly because the Germans didn't have the same level of access to influential people in the United States, and partly because the Germans published the book with a cover price of 10 marks, which tended to reduce the number of people willing to get a copy. The next major incident of the war that became a public relations disaster for the Germans was the sinking of the RMS Lusitania. On the 7th of May 1915, the Lusitania was sunk by a U-boat attack, with the death of many of her passengers. The British were quick to provide their perspective, and the New York Times carried a quote from Gilbert Parker, the British propagandist, that this event was a most inhumane crime committed by an inhumane nation which has placed itself outside the bounds of civilization. Once again, the agenda was being set by the British, leaving the Germans to react to the accusations of inhumanity. They stated accurately as it happened that the ship was carrying munitions from the United States to Britain and was therefore a legitimate military target. However, the British were not going to acknowledge this. Part of the British approach had always been to emphasise stories positive to their cause while underplaying or censoring elements that didn't play in their favour. The Lusitania incident is interesting as it occurred just a few days ahead of the publication of the Bryce Report, which on the heels of the general outrage over the Lusitania's sinking, provided what many people saw as further evidence of Germany's pattern of behaviour. However, the Lusitania may have just been seen as another terrible incident in a terrible war if it hadn't been for the unfortunate Lusitania medallion which was created privately by a German sculptor with a limited run of 500 medals to commemorate the sinking. Condemning the Cunard Liner Company for profiteering from ticket sales after Germany had declared unrestricted submarine warfare, the medal depicted the ship sinking on one side and on the other side a skeleton selling tickets under a banner saying business before everything. Photographs of the medal found their way, with the Foreign Office help, into the American press with the story that the medals were presented to the U-boat crew, understandably causing outrage. Here was another example of German frightfulness that gave the Lusitania story a new lease of life. Determined to prove to the Germans that bad things tend to happen in groups of three, the British seized upon the opportunity to elevate the Lusitania controversy to a new level when the British propagandists in collaboration with Selfridge's department store, struck their own copy of the medal, accompanied with an explanatory, accompanied with an explanatory pro-British note. And, capitalising on the outrage, the replica medal sold around 300,000 copies in aid of St Dunstan's Blinded Soldiers and Sailors Hostel and the Red Cross. Thus, the British were able to keep the story going for many months more than it would have ordinarily run. As well as playing into the who's in the right side of information warfare, atrocity stories were also used to encourage support for subscriptions to war loans. Many war loan advertisements portrayed Belgium as a delicate, often underdressed woman who was under attack from the rapacious Hun. This inspired feelings of horror and then provided a simple financial action that could be taken to protect her. Of course, it wasn't all plain sailing for British propaganda. The suppression of the Easter Rising in Ireland in 1916 and the subsequent executions of many of the Irish ringleaders 
had an adverse effect on the worldwide perceptions about Britain to counter ill feeling in the United States, where there was a strong Irish community. Efforts were made to discredit the Irish nationalists and prevent them from becoming martyrs for their cause. Most notably, Sir Roger Casement's diaries were found and published. The diaries conveniently included accounts of his homosexuality, and it remains unclear whether the diaries are forged or genuine. Either way, the hand of the propagandists can be seen in their spread, which, when combined with the resurgence of interest in the Lusitania affair, may have helped to shore up Britain's reputation. What is clearer is that Germany failed to exploit opportunities for propaganda when they inevitably occurred. With a large Irish-American community, American public opinion would have been receptive to well-placed stories about British behaviour. Wellington House was prolific in its output. By mid-1915, around 2.5 million printed books, pamphlets, papers and official publications had been published across 17 different languages. By mid-1916, 300 books and pamphlets, covering 21 languages, and six newspapers that were printed every two weeks with a print run of one million copies were being produced. In addition to this, 4,000 photos were being sent out for use in newspapers across the globe. Despite this prolific output, the emphasis remained on getting the materials into the right hands, either by sending them directly, often with a personalised covering note to their intended target, or supplying them to public libraries as reference materials. Masterman's outfit also embraced the relatively new medium of film and recognised its importance to his work. As early as December 1915, the film Britain Prepared, the first official documentary film of the war, was circulated in neutral countries to show the extent to which Britain was ready to see the war through to its end. Wellington House was also behind one of the most viewed films of the Great War, the Battle of the Somme used real footage of men and battles that made up the Great British Offensive of 1916 and was a huge hit both in Britain, around 20 million people saw the film in the UK, and abroad. Opening in London on the 10th of August 1916, the film shows various scenes relating to the offensive, many real and some staged for the cameras, that shows the preparations, the first day of the Somme, the capture of German prisoners, the treatment of the wounded on both sides, and the devastation of the surrounding area. While the film was subject to scrutiny of the official censors, it provided audiences at home and abroad with a glimpse of the conditions in France. Notably, the Battle of the Somme didn't shy away from showing the reality of the effects of modern warfare, with approximately 13% of the film comprising of scenes related to dead or wounded soldiers, and this resulted in a mixed reception and some hurried censorship when it was perceived that it was supposedly affecting support for the war in the United States. By 1916, the distribution list for Wellington House's written materials ran to some 170,000 opinion formers in the United States, and these people acted as a conduit for influencing wider opinion. The remarkable achievement was that no one knew that these people were being targeted by a government-funded propaganda organisation, to all intents and purposes, it had appeared as if patriotic individuals were simply reaching out to their American friends, colleagues and counterparts and sending materials they might be interested in. Despite this success, Masterman's organisation was not immune to the machinations of internal politics. The long-running rivalry between the Foreign Office and the War Office set up at the beginning of the war over who should control the propaganda effort came to a head in early 1916, 
when the War Office proposed a single organisation to control all government propaganda and presumably proposed that the War Office should be in charge of that. The proposal fell into an impasse at first as the civil servants of the Home Office and Foreign Office struggled with the military at the War Office and the Admiralty. The Foreign Office faction reasoned that as much of the effort was aimed at foreign audiences, it made sense for them to control it. The military view was that given they controlled censorship and propaganda was a part of the war effort, it made sense for it to be centralised under a single organisation. The issue was only resolved when Lloyd George took over as Prime Minister in 1916. Keen to rely on the expertise of the great press barons Lord Northcliffe and Lord Beaverbrook, Lloyd George commissioned a report into the whole question that recommended creation of a single body to coordinate all government communication. The Department of Information was established in February 1917, under the control of John Buchan, the author of the novel 39 Steps, and Masterman's organisation found its remit reduced to printed materials, the output of the war artists, and the dissemination of official photographs. Then in April, with the entry of the United States into the war, one of Masterman's key objectives was suddenly met, reducing the need for his organisation's work. And from this point, Wellington House's importance truly began to fade. As it happened, the new organisation under Buchan followed much the same approach as Masterman, deliberately avoiding sensationalism and in turn inviting the criticism that it wasn't taking the information war to the enemy hard enough. Like Masterman, Buchan too was cautious about the material and the way he disseminated information. Notably, he was criticised for not attacking the enemy when news emerged in a story in the Times that the Germans had constructed a corpse factory to convert the bodies of fallen soldiers into animal feeds, stating that there wasn't enough evidence to support the story. This story appears to have evolved from a German newspaper report about a factory that was converting cadavers, probably horses, into useful products. The Times embellished the story, maintaining that the factory was designed to convert human corpses, perhaps following the misrouting of a train carriage full of German soldiers' bodies to Holland instead of Liege. The discovery of the misrouted train's gruesome contents clearly excited people's imaginations. As further evidence in support of the story, the Times cited a British officer who had maintained that he had seen the Germans recovering bodies from the battlefield around Vimy Ridge, commenting darkly that there didn't seem to be many German graves in the area. The gruesome nature of this story meant that, regardless of the actual evidence, it fitted nicely with the general theme that the Germans were more than capable of this kind of horror. However, the danger in promoting such outlandish stories risked the intended audience deciding that it couldn't possibly be true, and therefore ignoring more important true messaging. If we take the example of the soldiers in the operational areas, we can see that they were often willing to ignore or actively mock obvious propaganda. British soldiers referred to such materials as eyewash, while the French referred to it as bourrage de crin, or skull stuffing. Of course, while obvious propaganda might be ignored, it seems likely that some got through to even the most thoughtful of soldiers, as Robert Graves was to write. It never occurred to me that newspapers and statesmen could lie. I forgot my pacifism. I was ready to believe the worst of the Germans. I discounted 20% of the atrocity details as wartime exaggeration. That was not, of course, enough. The problem was that whilst people can be influenced, they're often not as dumb as others think they are. 
And once one lie has been detected, as we can see with modern disinformation campaigns, it tends to lead to a cynicism about all information. A nice example of the reaction to obvious propaganda can be found in the account of 2nd Lieutenant Douglas Gillespie, who wrote a letter home in May 1915 saying, I've just been looking at a full-page photo in an Illustrated Weekly with the stirring title How Three Encountered Fifty and Prevailed, and a footnote describing their gallant deeds in detail. The Dauntless Three belonged to this regiment, but we were a little puzzled as we had never been to La Basse, where their exploit took place. A close inspection showed that the trees were in full leaf, and the men were wearing spats and hose tops which we have long since abandoned for general use. It makes one distrust all newspapers more than ever to catch them out like that. This is a minor example, but the danger of obvious falsehoods damaging trust could have had wider implications than just the faith in the newspapers of a son and his parents. The handling of the Zimmerman telegram, which was political dynamite, required a high level of trust to be maintained. The telegram, trying to broker Mexico into attacking America, was true, but required careful handling to ensure that British code-breaking capabilities remained secret, whilst also convincing the Americans of its veracity. The tightrope was successfully trod, and the Germans unexpectedly confirmed the contents of the document. Thus, with trust intact, the Zimmerman telegram was instrumental in finally shifting American public opinion towards participation in the war. With the American entry into the war, the need for the Allies to cultivate American public opinion naturally lessened. However, America immediately began to participate in the propaganda war, setting up the Committee on Public Information, CPI, to handle both censorship and propaganda. Known as the Creel Committee, after George Creel, a journalist who ran the new department, the department was divided into the self-explanatory foreign and domestic sections. Unlike Wellington House, the American version was not secret, churning out pamphlets, written materials, films and photographs in support of the American way of life, American democracy and America's involvement in the war. In addition to printed materials, a large network of four-minute men gave short propaganda speeches at public events and during film showings, often when the film reels were being switched over halfway through. This effort was aimed mainly at the domestic audience and the emphasis, given the absence of a direct threat to the United States itself, was that the United States was fighting against a tyrannical regime in support of democracy, both in America and overseas. However, despite this high-minded approach, much domestic propaganda was still focused on shoring up anti-German feelings. Hollywood participated with stars such as Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford and Charlie Chaplin appearing in anti-German films, and spy films were a popular way of bringing the threat of war to an American audience. However, the CPI also filmed over 60 of its own films, with titles such as Pershing's Crusaders and Our Coloured Fighters, designed to aid support for the troops and encourage recruitment. For foreign audiences, the Americans fell back on the well-worn atrocity literature that was used to show the nature of Germany's Prussian militarism, but with a distinct shift in emphasis away from the frightfulness of the German people towards that of their leaders. President Wilson stated, We have no quarrel with the German people. We have no feeling towards them but one of sympathy and friendship. It is not on their impulse that their government acted in entering this war. 
This approach differed from propaganda seen so far, which lumped all of Germans under the heading of the Hun, and stated that once a Hun, always a Hun. Now the propagandists partly switched their hostile propaganda to trying to drive a wedge between Germany's leaders and the common people who were doing most of the fighting and dying. Back in Britain, by late 1917, Buchan, in turn, was victim of a report that criticised his failure to fully centralise the propaganda effort. Coinciding with the collapse of Russia's war effort and increasing war fatigue at home, it appeared that new efforts were needed to target propaganda against the enemy and away from the neutral countries. The War Office finally won the political battle and took control of the newly formed Ministry of Information under Lord Beaverbrook and the Enemy Propaganda Department under Lord Northcliffe. This new department was colloquially known as Crew House. Now removed from the control of the Foreign Office and spurred on by President Wilson's 14 points announcement, which spoke of self-determination for various ethnic groups, Northcliffe set about targeting Crew House against the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which he rightly saw as the most receptive place for hostile propaganda. Focusing on the charged issues of national determination in multi-ethnic Austro-Hungary, he ignored Foreign Office concerns over the dangers to the British Empire of opening up a Pandora's box of self-determination. It was not all plain sailing for the press barons, who soon found themselves in, as Beaverbrook would call it, a remorseless battle to further their goals that they found frustrating and energy-sapping. And whilst their involvement passed into popular myth as a successful end to the propaganda campaign, in reality their contribution was more mixed than is often portrayed. Remember, one of the key audiences who vouched for the efficacy of British propaganda were the Germans, following their defeat, and as a part of saving face and creating the sinister stab-in-the-back or Dolstros myth, which found traction in the post-war period. Both Hitler and Ludendorff wrote about the effect of the enemy's propaganda. Hitler wrote in Mein Kampf, In 1915, the enemy started his propaganda among our soldiers. From 1916, it had swollen into a storm cloud. One could now see the effects of this gradual seduction. Our soldiers learned to think the way that the enemy wanted them to think. Obviously, we need to take this with a pinch of salt. Obviously, we need to take this with a pinch of salt. Hitler was keen to perpetuate the stab in the back myth and was as sold on the idea of propaganda as the next homicidal dictator. Ludendorff's memoirs included the following quote Germany was hypnotised by the enemy propaganda as a rabbit is by the snake and referred to the British propaganda operation as the Ministry for the Destruction of German Confidence. Of course, Ludendorff, like the generals of 1945, would have been keen on anything that pointed out that the roots of the German defeat lay outside of the German general staff. We can never be sure how successful the campaign against the German home front was. The true picture is muddled by heavy casualties, the slow tilting of the balance of power after American entry into the war and the effects of the British blockade, but we can understand the measures taken to disrupt the German war effort. In the days before reliable radio broadcasts, the primary medium for targeting enemy combatants were printed leaflets. The Germans had first dropped leaflets in the autumn of 1914 around Nancy. The British responded and a war of leaflets was well underway by March 1915, with the Royal Flying Corps and German Air Force dropping leaflets on each other's side of the lines. The French lagged behind with the Service de la Propaganda Aérienne, being formed in the autumn of 1915. 
Materials dropped by the Entente powers included newspapers, safe conduct passes for those who wanted to surrender, and maps showing how to desert in the general direction of home. All measures aimed at encouraging the enemy to capitulate. More creative ideas, such as dropping reproduction menus from well-known British restaurants designed to show the contrast between blockaded Germany and thriving Britain, were designed to show how Germany was losing the supply war. These measures were necessarily aimed at enemy troops. Even if the Allies had wanted to, the means of delivering propaganda to the enemy populations simply didn't exist. The method with the furthest reach was to drop leaflets from balloons or aircraft. Aircraft had obvious advantages, but following a German court-martial against four captured airmen, which resulted in 10-year prison sentences for dropping leaflets containing insults against the German army and government, the British War Office instructed that leaflets only be delivered by balloons. Whilst the diplomatic furore was eventually sorted out, and the men were treated as normal prisoners of war again, the ban remained in force for much of the rest of the war, leaving balloons as the only viable approach for delivering leaflets. This restriction limited the effective range of leaflet operations to a maximum of about 50 miles and greatly reduced the accuracy of delivery. Reliant on wind direction and luck, this method required filling a balloon with hydrogen gas and tying a bundle of leaflets on a loop of rope hanging underneath, as the balloon was launched, the rope was set alight so that it would smoulder as it flew, eventually burning through and releasing the leaflets to flutter down over enemy territory in the hope they'd be picked up. Targeting the Austro-Hungarian Empire with its agglomeration of people and ethnicities, Crew House stepped up its leafleting efforts, reasoning that the collapse of Germany's main ally would be a major victory. Between spring and autumn 1918, 60 million leaflets and 10 million newspapers were dropped over Austro-Hungarian territory. The materials were tailored by language and ethnicity to appeal directly to the various minorities that made up the enemy forces. Once again, the efficacy of the propaganda is unclear. What is clear is that desertion was a genuine problem for the Austro-Hungarians and therefore the central powers in general and prisoners were often carrying leaflets when they crossed over the lines. The Austro-Hungarian authorities obviously thought the leaflets were a problem, as it was forbidden to have them on pain of death. The problem of getting the message to the enemy led to more creative approaches being tried. Loudspeakers broadcast messages about the futility of the Central Powers situation across the front lines, and the British diplomatic mission in Basel in Switzerland regularly floated messages in bottles down the River Rhine into Germany. It's unclear how effective this latter approach was. Possibly the best indicator that the propaganda efforts against Germany were effective was in the reaction of the German command to it. Why impose penalties for soldiers who didn't hand in leaflets they found and offer rewards to those who did if you didn't believe they had some power? Towards the end of the war, it became apparent that German morale was suffering and one of the reasons for this decline was neglect. Domestically, the German Pressamt was tasked with providing news about the war to the German press, with maintaining morale among the armed forces, and with morale on the home front. With this split responsibility, they struggled to focus fully on all areas at once, and in practice, tended to focus on the provision of news about the war, neglecting the issue of morale. Whilst the effect of propaganda is hard to quantify, by mid-1918, Germany's position was becoming increasingly difficult as the war dragged on. The British blockade began to take its toll, 
and the Americans began to send troops over the Atlantic. The only thing we can be sure of is that leaflets were found on German soldiers, that they were read, and were not always discarded or handed in. So the million dollar, or should we say million leaflet question remains, how effective was propaganda during the war? Every combatant took part in the propaganda war to some extent or another, and each with differing emphasis and degrees of success. This suggests that each nation considered that the propaganda effort was worth their time and resources. It's widely acknowledged that Entente propaganda directed at neutral powers was more effective than that of central powers. This was to some extent inevitable due to the common language that Britain shared with the most important neutral power, but there were other advantages such as the naval blockade, the disrupted undersea cable network and existing trade relationships that naturally tended to align the United States with the Entente. However, public opinion had to be moved for President Wilson to bring the United States into the war, and it seems certain that Wellington House was instrumental in achieving this. However, it is important not to overplay the Machiavellian influence of the British. The Germans also played a key part in realigning American opinion by providing fertile material for the Entente propagandists. I hope you've enjoyed that uh, free-ranging roam around the landscape of propaganda in the First World War. This was one of those subjects that the moment you started to dig into it, you just turned up more and more material and so many great stories that uh, it seemed a shame not to put them all in. The result of that was that it's taken weeks to write and uh, has come in a little over 9,000 words, which was certainly more than I was expecting when I started, but I wanted to give the... Uh, the subject a certain amount of justice. If you have enjoyed this, there are ways you can support the podcast. In the show notes, I've included a bibliography, and if you fancy buying any of the books, uh, there are affiliate links in there that result in a small kickback, which helped to pay for the uh, podcast hosting. The other way that you can support is to go over to Substack and search for News from the Front and subscribe to the newsletter there. That's where I publish the transcripts or the originating text of these podcasts and uh, there's a wealth of information on that. Finally, just thank you for listening. It is appreciated. And uh, I'll look forward to uh, you joining me in the next episode. Bye-bye.